last week, there's this underlying tension between Jesus and the Pharisees in Matthew 12 that all erupts and becomes much more open. There's a lot more hostility between them, and it's all centering on Jesus' identity. And so uh, today what we're going to see is there's a, there's a miracle, and it's really it's just a springboard for Jesus to kind of launch into this little sermonette um, in, in response to the Pharisees. So that's what we're going to see. There's a, a brief miracle. The Pharisees level an accusation at Jesus, and then he responds. So starting in verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said it was only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And so there you see your two options. You've got son of David, instrument of Satan. Those are the two options for understanding who Jesus is and what he's doing. The son of David, that's a messianic title. God in 2 Samuel 7 promises to David, he says, you're going to have a son who's going to sit on the throne forever. The Jews very quickly grabbed onto that promise and said, the Messiah will come from the line of David. The the Christ, if you like that word better, the, the, the Savior sent by God to redeem Israel and to usher in his kingdom, it's going to come through the line of David. And so son of David in your Bible, it's probably capitalized. It was an official title, again, looking forward to the Messiah. So on one hand, we've got... Jesus is the Messiah, he's, he's an instrument of God, he's sent by God to do something, or it's by Beelzebub, which is another name for the devil, it's by his power that Jesus is doing these things. And so that, those are our two options, and uh, this is how Jesus responds. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? There were Jewish exorcists um, practicing during the day, so that's who he's referring to. So then these Jewish exorcists will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob rob his house. So Jesus' first point is he just talks about the it's really it's just the silliness of what the Pharisees are saying. It's, it's, it's dumb. Why in the world would Satan empower me to cast out demons? That, that would be Satan undermining his own work. So if, if part of what Satan does is he, is he enslaves people, then why would he empower me to free them from his grip? That's, that's civil war. That's internal strife. His kingdom can't last. That's just dumb to think that that's honestly what's going on here. And you have people in your group who are doing the same thing that I'm doing. Are you saying they're empowered by Satan as well? Well, of course not. There's another option. The Holy Spirit is the one who's empowering me to do this work. And it's a sign that the kingdom of God, when I say that, remember, don't think geographic. Think the rule or reign of God. It's a sign that the rule or the reign of God is advancing. Every time we, I, Jesus, cast out a demon, what I'm doing is I'm binding Satan and I'm freeing someone who's captive to him. That's this whole idea of the strong man. I'm tying him up and I'm ransoming, I'm redeeming, I'm rescuing these people who are under his rule and reign, these people who are in captivity to him. That's actually what's going on here. Of course, the it, Satan is not giving me power to drive out other demons. That's him working against himself. What's going on here? is the Holy Spirit is empowering me to do this. Verse 30, this is our key verse for today. He who is not with me is against me, 
and he who does not gather with me scatters. What Jesus is saying is you've got to make a decision. There is no fence to sit on. You're with me or against me, you gather or you scatter. That's a very harsh statement. But it's the truth. What he's saying there is you've got to make a decision, and your decision is about me. It's about my identity. It's about who I am. C.S. Lewis kind of classically gave us the options. Jesus is the Lord. He is who he says he is. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's either that or he's a lunatic. He thought he was all of those things and he was mistaken or he's a liar. He knew he wasn't any of those things and he said he was anyway. Those are your three options according to C.S. Lewis in his reading of the New Testament. I would agree. The New Testament, Jesus himself doesn't give you ground to say he's a great moral teacher. Because what he says is, I'm the son of God. So either he is or he isn't. And if he isn't, he's a crazy man or he's a wicked man. Neither of those make him a great moral teacher. We don't get our morals from crazy people or wicked people. Some people say, well, he was just a healer. He, that's not what he says. He says, I'm the son of God. He says, I'm equal with God. Remember, we've talked about that. When he forgives the paralytic his sins, what he's saying, the Pharisees say, nobody can, for, for, can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus is like, that's right. And that's why I did it. Because I'm him. I'm, that's it for me. I'm the son of God. He makes bold statement after bold statement and backs it up with his actions. And so the question for us becomes, Who do you say that I am? The most important question anybody will ever answer, ever, ever. We'll look at it in Matthew 16 when Jesus says this to Peter. Who do you say that I am? That's what Jesus is saying here. Everything for us rises and falls on the answer to that question. We're gathering or we're scattering. We're for or we're against. If you're someone here this morning and you have not yet made a decision to follow Jesus, then my question to you is who do you say that he is? It's easy to get sidetracked. What about people who've never heard the gospel? What about the problem of evil? What about pain and suffering in the world? Those things are important, but they're not primary. What God wants to know is, who do you say that Jesus is? If you can come up with the answer to that question, then we can talk about the rest of those things in light of who he is. Until you're confident and secure in your answer to who he is, you can't make sense of those other things anyway. So if you haven't made a decision to follow him this morning, my encouragement to you, if he showed up in your room tonight and said, Brandon, who do you say that I am? What's the answer to the question for you? If you can't articulate it, nothing that you're doing today or tomorrow or next week or this year as important as you coming up with an an answer to that question. Who do I say that Jesus is? Don't get lost in the fog of that. Just you pierce through. That's the bottom line for us. If you've already made a decision to follow Jesus, it's a present tense tense question for you. Not who do you say I was 20 years ago when you made a decision to follow me. Who do you say that I am for you today? If you've been long with the Lord, you know, it seems like he's constantly asking for more. He's not satisfied with our level of trust in him. That's faith. It's just another word for trust. And so he's constantly asking us to re-up with him. Do you see him today as the, one, as the forgiver of your sins? As the one who paid the penalty for your sins? Or do you live in a cycle of guilt and condemnation, trying to work off from last week? You feel like God erases with a pencil and eraser and not with white out. Do you see him as the victor over sin and death and 
Satan? Or do you live in a cycle of despair and defeat? I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. Oops, there I did it. Then I'm going to feel guilty about it for however long and rinse and repeat. And that's what we do over and over again. Or do you live in a victory? Have you been set free? Do you live with Jesus recognizing who is he to you? He's a healer. Or do you live resigned to chronic conditions that however you are is how you're going to be? Or is that something that you ask him, God, heal me? Do you live with Jesus as, your, as a good shepherd who leads you into green pasture? Or do you try to figure everything out on your own and make your own way? Who is he to you today? Most likely, what he's asking you to do is to take another step. He gives us a little piece of revelation. Here's who, And then he asks us to act on it. I'm going to show you this about me, and then I want you to put your weight on it. It's not just information for its own sake. It's information leading us into deeper relationship with him. I learn to trust God for myself, and then I get married and have to learn to trust him with a wife. And then I have a kid, and then I have a kid, and then I have a kid, and then I have a kid. And I've got to learn to trust him with all of that. And I've got to learn to trust him as a leader in a church. And all of these, and the same thing is true for you. You learn to trust Him with your sins. Then you learn to trust Him with your spiritual life. And you learn to trust Him with your, maybe your moral life. And you've got to learn to trust Him with your dating life. And you learn to trust Him with your finances. And then you learn to trust Him with, that's how it works. And then it's this relationship. And then He's asking for this. And all of these different places, He's saying, who do you say that I am? And that's not an intellectual answer. It's a, it's a relational answer. I say that you're a good shepherd. And so I'm going to put my trust in you to help me figure this thing out. You're going to lead me. I'm not going to lead me. I'm going to let you do that. You lead me by green pastures. I run myself into the desert. And so I'm going to wait for you to show me the way forward. Those types of things, that's what he's asking for you. Again, wherever you are with him, he's constantly asking for more this way and for more this way from us. Deeper levels of trust. This decision is so important, it has eternal consequences. Verse 31, and so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So again, this decision that we have to make, am I a gatherer or a scatterer? Am I for or am I against? Who do I say Jesus is? It has eternal consequences. Jesus talks about this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is that? Contextually, it's something that the Pharisees were doing. What were they doing? They were attributing to Satan something that actually came from God. So a work of God driving out demons, they were saying that actually comes from Satan. So we've said before, anything God does on the earth, he does in, by, through the Holy Spirit. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that's the same thing as Uh, completely missing the activity of God among us. That's the same thing. It's what we talked about Pharaoh a couple of weeks ago. Moses is these these mighty miracles. They're devastating, so we call them plagues. They're destructive miracles, but God's performing them. You got rivers turning to blood and boils and gnats and frogs and hail and all this stuff going on. Pharaoh refuses to see that as the activity of God. The Bible says he hardens his heart. And then God cooperates with him and he hardens Pharaoh's heart as well. What was it? The first five plagues, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then God says, okay, if that's the way you want to go, then I'll, all right, then I'm going to harden your heart as well. That's 
you could, could, you could see that as a picture of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's this continual resistance to the activity of God, attributing God's activity to anyone else. The Pharisees attribute it to Satan. That's what it looks like to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. So why is that the unforgivable sin? Out of everything that God could have said, I'm not going to forgive. Why that one? How come that's the thing that doesn't get forgiven? The only sin God can't forgive is our unwillingness to be forgiven. The only sin that God can't forgive is our unwillingness to be forgiven. Remember, the question is, who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? The activity of the Holy Spirit is to confirm Jesus' identity. It points to who he is. He's the Son of God. He's not a crazy man, and he's not a wicked man. He is who he says he is. That's what the activity of the Spirit is meant to do. And if I reject that, and I attribute his work to anyone else, then what I'm doing is I'm rejecting the only one who can forgive me. That's why it's the unforgivable sin. Everyone is invited. The only people who are rejected are the people who don't come. Those are the ones who who are rejected. So for us, some of you, you struggle with this whole idea of assurance. You've prayed 173 times for Jesus to enter your heart because you wonder, did I commit the unforgivable sin? You didn't. If you care, you didn't. When you stop caring, then let's talk about that. When you quit caring about your relationship with God, when you quit actually wondering Where am I with Him? God, what are you saying to me? How do I follow you? As long as you're doing that, then you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You're not blaspheming Him. You're not in danger of attributing to Satan the work of God in your life. You don't have to worry about that. It's a tool of the enemy just to get you running around a treadmill. So don't do that. You're fine. I'm telling every one of you, you're fine. You haven't done this. What this looks like to me the importance we talked a couple of weeks ago about not hardening our hearts. And if you can't, if you're not in a position today to say, you know, I'm, like if you would say today, my eyes are, I'm not, my eyes aren't open to this. Would you at least be, say, I'm willing for them to be opened if it's true. Can you at least do that part? Is there at least a willingness in you that if this stuff is true, you'll, you'll, you'll get on board? You're not willing to say it's true yet. You're not willing to buy that Jesus is the way, truth, and the life. You're not willing to give yourself to him yet. Okay, are you at least willing to be convinced of that? Are you at least willing to entertain the possibility that it is true? If you can maintain that posture of willingness, that's good. If you can't, that's when things get dangerous. And that's why Jesus is speaking so harshly to the Pharisees. We'll see that in a second. There's no such thing as incontrovertible, irrefutable proof. Jesus fed at least 12,000 people with one little boy's lunch. At least 12,000 people literally ate a miracle. There's 120 people in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. That's a 1% retention rate. Not good. We read eyes open, lame walking, paralytics. I mean, we read these miracles. There's 120 people who stick all the way through. We can come up with alternate explanations for anything. There are a lot of really, really smart people with a bunch of letters after their name who with all manner of intellectual integrity will tell you it is more plausible to believe that life sprang from inorganic matter than that we have a creative God. With all straight-faced, 100% integrity in their minds, it's more plausible that life came from non-life than that there's a supernatural God. I don't get that. Never ever in the history of ever has life come from non-life. But we're willing to hang on that. 
We'll come up with an alternate explanation for anything. There's no such thing as irrefutable or incontrovertible. There's always steps of faith. When it's irrefutable and incontrovertible, that's when Jesus comes back, and at that point, it's too late to make a decision because then faith is not required at all. There's no trust element when you know. When it's 100% clear, then trust is not required. And what does the Bible say? Without faith, without trust, it's impossible to please God. I told you all this story a couple of years ago when I was a junior in high school. There were six of, or college, there were six of us who were, wanted to live together the next year. Five of us were pretty strong Christians, and there was one guy who was wavering. He had been a Christian, but there was a, he had a big personal blow. Someone close to him had died. And it's to his knowledge, that it, this person had never decided to follow Jesus. He wasn't a Christian. In his mind, he, he said, I can't imagine that he's in hell forever. I just, and if he is, then I want to be there with him. I can't go to heaven without this guy, which I guess is noble and dumb. But that's what he was saying. That's, that's, that's what he was saying. I can't imagine a God who would send him to hell. And I was like, God... The guy picked. He, this guy I know had been presented with the gospel on multiple times. And he, re, he said no. So if he says no for all of these years, I don't want to be in a relationship with Jesus, then why in the world would he want to spend forever with the guy? And so that's hell. If God is the source of all good things and I don't want to be in a relationship with him, then, I can't, then I'm cut off from all good things. And the, what's the only other option? No good thing, which is hell. I didn't send him there. He just gave the guy what he wanted. But my friend couldn't grab onto that. And I get it. He loved this person. And he couldn't grab onto it. And so we started to doubt. And God had this big X on that side of the ledger. And so we said, well, what about an answer to prayer? Does that put a check on God's side? And he said, sure. And we said, okay. There's six of us and we want to live together. We had all kinds of conditions. There were two guys who were kind of like vampires. And they needed their own room so they could only, they slept all day and woke up at night. And that's what they did. And so they needed their own room, and there was one guy who didn't have a car, and so he needed to be able to walk to campus, and there were two guys. I think their number was 125 a month. That tells you the level of home we were looking at. That guys could pay 125 a month and live there. There were two or three other things. And so we prayed on it. I remember it was a Tuesday night. We prayed. The next Tuesday, we had the place. It had to be the only house in Athens that fit all of this criteria. And we said, is this a check mark for God? And he said, No. And we said, why? And he said, because we knew the guy that lived there before. We knew the guy. We didn't know that his roommates were leaving. We didn't know any of that stuff. But we know the guy who lived there before. He's actually sitting right over there. We know the guy who lived there before. And so it doesn't count. What? We can come up with explanations for anything. There's no such thing as irrefutable or incontrovertible. And if that's what you're waiting for, you're going to be waiting until Jesus comes back. And it's too late. So I'm asking you this morning, who do you say that he is? If you've never made a decision, who do you say that he is? If you're walking with him, who do you say that he is? Verse 33, make a tree good and the fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So what Jesus is saying here, I think he's being so harsh with the Pharisees, brood of vipers, eternal damnation, because words matter. 
Words reflect your heart. And what he's saying to the Pharisees, if you legitimately think that I'm empowered by Satan to drive out demons, if that's what you really think, let me tell you what that says about the condition of your heart. This is serious business. If you can believe something so outlandish that Satan is empowering me to free people from his own grip, that's where you're coming down on this. Let me tell you, that's that's coming from in your heart. And what does that say about the wickedness and the hardness of your heart if you honestly are going to say that's the most likely explanation for what I'm doing? For us, what the point becomes is our words matter. We live out of our hearts. It's very difficult for us to know our own heart. Was it Jeremiah 17 or so says that our hearts are desperately wicked? It's difficult for us to discern our own heart. We can justify and rationalize and explain all kinds of things. We're great at blaming people in circumstances for our own sinfulness. It's what we do. Self-protection. And so what Jesus is saying is, here, I'm giving you a mirror so you can see your heart. It's really hard to do this, so I'm going to give you a mirror. Just do this. When you, the things that you say and the things that you do, they're a reflection of what's in here. There's a word tribulation. It only appears once in the Bible. I think it's uh, Revelation 7.14 in in the NIV. But the idea runs throughout the New Testament. Oftentimes the word is distress or it's translated trials. And what it means is a pressing or a squeezing. And Jesus promises you're going to experience this. As long as you live here, you're going to experience this pressing, squeezing. These trials or tribulations, it's all the same thing. And what Jesus is saying is what comes out of you in those moments, that's because it's what's in you. What's in you comes out of you. And so the question for us becomes, well, what comes out of us when we're squeezed? If I've got a cup full of water and you bang me, what's going to come out of the cup? Water. (laughs) If I have a glass of sweet tea and you bang me, what's going to come out? Sweet tea. At nine, somebody said water. (laughs) Which would make me a miracle worker. So it's whatever's in there comes out of there. Whatever's in me comes out of me when you bang into me. And so the question becomes, well, what's coming out of you? Because that's a reflection of what's going on. It's a gift from God. And that's what Jesus is trying to say to these Pharisees. He's not willing. The Bible clearly says God does not delight in anyone going to hell. And so even these who at this point are actively opposed to his ministry, I think Jesus is trying to get their attention. He wants them to see what they're doing. And so he said, listen to me. If you guys are, listen to what you're saying and what that reflects about your heart in order to try to wake them up to the reality of their own heart condition. And the same thing is true for us. And so what comes out of you when you're stressed? I want you to think about that. Some people shut down and give up. What does that say about your heart? What is it in your heart that manifests itself in shutting down? And giving up. For some of us, when we're stressed, we just start working. And that's what we do. What is that? So that's what comes out of us. What does that say about our heart? What comes out of you when you're afraid? For some of us, we start building walls. I'm afraid I'm going to lock this thing down and I'm going to keep everything right here. Does that reflect a lack of trust in my heart? Because I don't trust God, therefore I've got to shut everything down and pull everything back and keep everything closed because I'm afraid. What comes out of your heart when you're angry? Is it venom? Is it rage? What does that say about what's in here? Is it pride that you feel wronged? Is that what it is a lot of times? I'm angry because I feel wronged. 
And so what comes out of me is rage and venom. I can blame other people or traffic or what at lack of sleep, but the bottom line is that came out of me because it was in me. What comes out of you when you're disappointed? You pout, despair, self-pity. What does that say? You deserve better. Is that what's in you? I deserve better than this. I should have been treated better than this, and I didn't. So I'm going to take my ball and go home. I don't know. I'm just asking when you're pressed, squeezed, whatever that looks like for you, whatever does that for you, what comes out of you, and can you see that as a gift from God? It's him holding up a mirror to your heart, which is so difficult for us to see, saying, that's what's going on in there, and let's, let's take care of that. That's what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees. That's what's going on in here, guys. Y'all are a brood of vipers right now. You are so bent out of shape because I don't look like the way you thought I would look. You're willing to attribute to Satan the clear activity of God. That's where we've gotten to. And so for us, it's the same thing. Here's the mirror. Do you realize every Monday morning you act like this? Let's talk about that. Do you realize every time money gets tight, this is what you do? Do you realize every time you have an encounter with that person, this is what happens? Those are mirrors where God's showing us our heart, not for the sake of condemning us, but for the sake of conforming us into the image of his son. Let's pray. God, I want to pray first for anyone here who's never made a decision to follow you. And my prayer is simply that you would, they would, be able to answer the question honestly. Who do they say that you are? And if it's anything other than the truth, God, I pray that you would speak to them in a way that they would get. They don't have to take my word for it, and they absolutely don't need to feel any sense of pressure or manipulation. But God, you would reveal yourself to them in a way that they would get so that they could come to the same conclusion as Peter. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. The Son of the living God. For those of us who are following you, I pray, God, if there are places where what we say about you is not true, or we're not living up to the fullness of who you say you are, God, I pray that you would beckon us forward and we would take a step of faith this morning, trusting you in a circumstance or with a relationship, whatever that looks like, God, that you would be our good shepherd, you would be our healer, you would be our savior, you'd be our victor, you'd, whatever that is that we need that you would be that for us this morning, Jesus. And I do pray that more and more you would conform our hearts to the image of your son. He was pressed on every side. He was squeezed to the point of death. And what came out of him was love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And my prayer for me and every man and woman in this room is that, that that would become more and more true of us. God, whatever work you need to do in our hearts so that when we're pressed, it's the fruit of the Spirit that comes spilling out of us. God, I pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to close with a song of worship. We'll have ministry teams up here in the front. We'd love to pray with you about anything at all that's going on in your life. I want to leave you with one uh, word of encouragement. Uh, Kim had a word this morning. It was, it was a, you may have heard this before. It was a great word. She said, God makes stumbling blocks stepping stones. So whatever it is that's keeping you, either from saying this is who Jesus is, making a decision for him, or trusting, whatever that thing is, if you can name it, 
and hold it out there and say, God, this is what's holding me back. This is what's tripping me up. This is what's making it difficult for me. If you could hold that up, God, do something with that. I need you to turn this. You don't have to pretend it's not there. That's a denial of reality, and God lives in reality. He's the most real. He, he is reality, and he lives there. He's not asking us to pretend. What he wants to know is, can, will you give me that stumbling block and let me turn it into a stepping stone to get you where I want you to be? And so this morning, if you would say, I know what that is for me. I've got intellectual, or I've got experiential, or I've got relational stumbling blocks that are keeping me from fully being who God wants me to be. Will you bring those to him? Ask him to transform them from stumbling blocks to stepping stones, and he will. You guys can stand, uh, and Bo will dismiss us after this song. Things like you do, God, I look to you.